All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog of the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cava Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services and all domains and is America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up, we are joined today by a return guest, Commander Benjamin B.J. Armstrong, to discuss interwar lessons, how to balance preparation with presence, and the importance of learning the right lessons at the right times. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. Well, the top news, the White House announced its long-delayed nominations for several top U.S. Navy leadership positions on July 21st. Admiral Lisa Franchetti, currently the Vice Chief of Naval Operations, is being nominated to become the 33rd Chief of Naval Operations. If confirmed, Admiral Franchetti would also become the first woman to hold the position and the first female member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Vice Admiral James Kilby, now the Deputy Commander of U.S. Fleet Forces Command, will be nominated for a fourth star and to become Vice Chief of Naval Operations. Admiral Samuel Paparo, currently head of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, will be nominated to head up the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. And Vice Admiral Steve Kohler, currently Director for Strategy, Plans, and Policy, J-5, at the Pentagon, will be nominated for a fourth star and the command of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. We'll discuss these moves a bit more later in the podcast. The U.S. has taken special steps in recent days to publicly reveal the operations of at least three deployed ballistic missile submarines. The USS Kentucky arrived at Busan, South Korea, July 18th, the first U.S. missile sub to visit Korea since 1981. While the move was forecast earlier this year by the U.S. and South Korean leadership, the Kentucky's visit was heavily criticized by North Korea, even after the communist country conducted a launch of a new intercontinental ballistic missile on July 13th. The U.S. also publicized the visit on July 12th by the missile submarine USS Maine to Dutch Harbor, Alaska. Meanwhile, in the European theater, the ballistic missile submarine USS Tennessee was operating off western Scotland. British Royal Navy submarine Commodore Paul Dunn and U.S. European Command Chief General Christopher Cavoli embarked the submarine at sea on July 18th. France on July 20th assumed command of Combined Task Force 150, the multinational naval task force patrolling the Gulf of Oman and Indian Ocean, taking over from the British Royal Navy. On July 17th, the U.S. announced that the the deployed destroyer Thomas Hudner would be sent to the Mideast region to beef up U.S. forces in response to increased Iranian moves against merchant ships in international waters. And on July 20th, the Pentagon said the amphibious ships Bataan and Carter Hall recently deployed with the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit, would also be sent to the area to, the Pentagon said in a statement, ensure freedom of navigation and deter Iranian destabilization activities in the region. U.S. Air Force F-35 and F-16 aircraft also are being sent to the Mideast. The littoral combat ship USS Canberra, LCS-30, was commissioned July 22nd in a ceremony at Sydney, Australia. The unusual setting for the ceremony is in tribute to the heavy cruiser HMAS Canberra, 
which was sunk in action during 1942 fighting with U.S. forces in the Solomons Campaign. Both Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro and Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday attended the ceremony. In addition to the Canberra, four other Independence-class littoral combat ships are currently deployed to the Indo-Pacific region, the Jackson, Gabrielle Giffords, Manchester, and Mobile. At least two Freedom-class ships are deployed. The Indianapolis is operating in the Mideast and Mediterranean regions, while the Little Rock is deployed to the Caribbean and Central America. July 22nd also marks the beginning of Exercise Talisman Sabre, held every two years by U.S. and Australian forces in and around Australia. This year's Talisman, Talisman Sabre is the 19th and largest ever event with forces from Fiji, France, Indonesia, Japan, the Republic of Korea, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Tonga, the United Kingdom, Canada, and Germany taking part. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, let's move to the discussion portion of the podcast. We are joined today by a return guest and friend of the pod, Commander Benjamin B.J. Armstrong. B.J. is a permanent military professor, former search and rescue and special warfare helicopter pilot, and served in the Pentagon as a strategist and staff officer in the office of the Secretary of the Navy. Um, BJ is here in his personal and academic uh, capacity and not in an official Navy capacity. BJ, welcome back to the podcast. Chris and Chris, thank you so much for having me aboard. So BJ, you were on um, almost a year ago um, and you spoke about uh, one of the uh, books and monographs that you uh, you had written. This time you have a new monograph out, Naval Presence in the Interwar, U.S. Navy and Marine Corps, Forward Deployment, Crisis Response and the Tyranny of History. Um, the book examines the Navy and Marine Corps during the interwar years from a new perspective. Can you talk a little bit about the book, specifically that new perspective and what uh, our audience should take away? Yeah, the the interwar years are a fascinating time uh, for military naval historians, frankly, for for historians of all of all descriptions. Um, But in the Navy and particularly in American naval history, there's a there's kind of a dominant narrative of that period. And it's an important narrative. It, it's not that it's wrong or invalid. What, what I'm contesting maybe is that it's incomplete. Now that traditional narrative is sometimes described by some historians as the virtuous cycle, right? And that's where, hey, World War I ends, the Navy came home and they started this program of, of war gaming and fleet exercises and doctrine development that would lead to the capabilities that would defeat Japan in the Second World War, right? So naval aviation was developed this way, amphibious warfare was developed this way, you know, the key doctrinal elements of how the Americans and the allies would defeat the Japanese in the Pacific. And this is, like I said, this is a true uh, description of part of the naval past. There was this virtuous cycle, right? There were these Fleet problems that were conducted during the era, they were preceded by war games at the Naval War College that suggested new ways of doing things. They'd test them out in these big fleet exercises. They'd write their after action reports. The whole thing would cycle back to the War College where they'd do more studies. You know, the general board and the CNO's office would get in there and they'd start writing new doctrine and new ways of fighting. This is absolutely valid. 
um, there's been great history written about this by folks like uh, Captain C.C. Felker and Trent Hone and their books about these fleet problems. This narrative, while true, like I said, is insufficient. And part of the challenge with it is if non-historians, if kind of the reading public or professional naval officers read this dominant narrative, they come away with the impression that the Navy was at home for the inner warriors for two decades, getting ready for the big fight. And then you can analyze that, right? And you can say, oh, look, that's how the US Navy was successful in World War II. Well, if there's gonna be another fight in the Pacific, maybe in the 21st century, maybe we should do the same thing again. We should bring the fleet home. We should run our exercises. We should develop how we're gonna fight in the Pacific again. The problem is the narrative's incomplete. Those fleet problems are not the only things that the Navy did and that the Marine Corps did during the inner war years. And so if we turn our heads away from all the other stuff that the Navy did, crisis response, humanitarian relief, naval diplomacy, what today tend to be called presence operations, then we ignore a whole like half of what a Navy is responsible for. And potentially we analyze today's challenges using bad history. And so in a way, this book is an effort to kind of color out, flesh out those other things that the Navy and Marine Corps did during the interwar years, besides just coming up with the new technologies and the new whiz-bang ideas that were going to be important to the Second World War. So I have, I've obviously, I haven't seen the monograph yet. It's, it's not going to be published for another few days as, as we speak. But I, if, if memory serves, a lot of the foreign involvement for the United States in those years was in Central America and the Caribbean. So Nicaragua was a long campaign and a lot of, a lot of marine activity down there, especially marine air, um, uh, Hispaniola, Haiti, uh, a lot of intervention. Can you talk about some of the specifics there where you thought, you know, this people have not paid enough attention to this. This had a bigger effect than people appreciate. That's a that's a really good question. And your point about the Caribbean is a great one. That, that is a, an important part of this history. The Special Service Squadron was the unit that the Navy created for the Caribbean service that explicitly from the very beginning in the early 1920s was mission defined as working with the State Department in the Caribbean. In fact, one historian labels them as the State Department's Navy at one point during that period. Um, so you're exactly right. There's, there's the intervention in Nicaragua. There's the intervention in Haiti that predates the First World War. There's the intervention in Santo Domingo, what today we call the Dominican Republic. Uh, all three of these interventions are kind of ebbs and ebb tides and flood tides of involvement. You know, Nicaragua uh, happens and then the Navy Marine Corps, you know, withdraw from Nicaragua. They go back a couple times. Um, but you're exactly right. There's also an enormous number of kind of minor naval diplomacy and deterrence missions that the Special Service Squadron conducts during the interwar years. They're visiting ports in Mexico, in Honduras, in El Salvador, all to stabilize events that look like they might be getting ready to push towards revolution, to protect American businesses, American citizens who are expats living in those places. They respond to uh, 
Panama and to Colombia and to Costa Rica when those countries are in arguments over where their borders are to try and stabilize things. So there are the big interventions that we tend to remember from our history, uh, it, sometimes called the banana wars um, in coverage of, of the American involvement in the Caribbean in this era. But there are a lot of little minor events. And what I try and do in part of the book is just show that drumbeat, that battle rhythm of constant activity that the Navy is asked to perform in the Caribbean. The Caribbean is not the only place they do this, right? So the Asiatic fleet is, is another one of the big ones of this era. The Asiatic fleet is formed immediately after the end of World War I. Actually, it existed pre-World War I and it's downsized. It's brought back after World War I. The Asiatic fleet contains Marine Corps elements. It contains the Yangtze Patrol, which are gunboats and destroyers that patrol the Yangtze River. It contains the South China Patrol Force, which is usually destroyers and cruisers that tend to work the ports along the southern shores of China, all of which are there to both defend and protect American business interests and missionaries and American citizens who are living and working in China, but also to provide some form of stability in a China that is undergoing what is really civil war at that time. So the, Yang the Yangtze Patrol, the South China Patrol Force, the Asiatic fleet as a whole is enormously busy, constantly doing things. And again, the book shows that drumbeat of constant activity from the Navy. And we're talking about a fleet that, you know, we're talking 50 ships at a time forward deployed to the Pacific to conduct these kinds of operations. These are, this is not onesies, twosies, right? Like this is a, this is a pretty significant element of the force. There's also pretty significant naval involvement in European waters um, at different points during this era. Immediately after World War I, American involvement in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Black Sea is enormous. Um, and then there's also, as we approach the Second World War and the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War, there's a U.S. Navy squadron called Squadron 40T that deploys to the Western Mediterranean in order to respond to the Spanish Civil War. These are often kind of forgotten about in how we talk about our naval history. And so all over the world, the Navy is enormously busy in these 20 years. I read a book uh, over the winter about um, the U.S. Navy's involvement in the Black Sea, uh, post-World War I, uh, early 20s, and uh, leading up to the establishment of the, of the um, Turkish Republic. And we had a very active presence at an extremely a tumultuous time in the Black Sea uh, between the Russian Revolution, which was ongoing, the, white, the whites and the reds, um, the evacuation of the old, um, old regime from, uh, from Russia, um, the conflict between Greeks and Turks. The, the, um, I mean, it was, it was an incredibly bloody, tumultuous thing. You know, one of the lessons of the Black Sea is everybody dies. I mean, it's a long history of people being not very nice to other people, but we were right in the middle of it. In some ways, that involvement reminded me of our presence in the continues in the Persian Gulf with the Fifth Fleet, and that, and, and that, while there are always strategic elements to everything, you're trying to be an honest broker uh, between people who don't get along, and it's a it's a it, it's a it's a tough mission for sure, and, and it can go wrong at any 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 point. But I think we were. It seems to me like we were trying that in the Black Sea for a while between all these factions. 
uh, and all this turmoil. Um, so, and we and, and we try that in in the Persian Gulf region. Is that is that fair? I mean, is that is that an echo of the missions? I, I think that's fair. There's there's some parallels there. There's some parallels to the Black Sea today, right? Um, I think one of the things, one of the takeaways I have from looking at all of this history, and, and the Black Sea is actually a great example of this, although it applies in those other geographies that I was talking about too, the Caribbean and the Pacific. The collaboration between the United States Navy and the State Department and other parts of US government was dramatic in this era, right? So Admiral Mark Bristol, who was in command of those destroyers in the Black Sea in the Eastern Mediterranean, was the Navy commander. He was dual-hatted. He was also the State Department's high commissioner to Turkey. Right? So he was both a State Department and a Navy figure in this era. Um, the Navy was working not just with the State Department, but with the food aid program that had come up after the First World War. Right After the First World War, there's an enormous amount of famine in Europe, and especially in Eastern Europe, and the American people decide to help, as the American people tend to do, and massive food aid is is sailed in on ships into the Eastern Mediterranean and into the Black Sea to get to these Eastern European ports. And the Navy is protecting that food aid from the food brought by the Food Administration. Um, and that's an important part of their mission. They're also supporting the Red Cross, the Red Cross and the, the Near Eastern Relief Society, both nonprofits, both non-government organizations that are bringing relief to the area. The Navy is protecting those ships. They're helping them find warehousing on the in the ports. They're helping them find anchorages and, and you know mooring places. They're collaborating and cooperating with all kinds of government agencies, all kinds of NGOs. American destroyers are running in and out of Crimea, evacuating civilians as the Bolsheviks come south into what we know of today as a, a place of great contest in, in Ukraine. And so the Americans are evacuating these civilians on their destroyers and bringing them to safety. They're doing the same thing, like you said, with the Greeks bringing them out of Smyrna when, when, the, when the fires and the tragedy happens at Smyrna. The American Navy is central to the evacuation of those civilians and the saving of hundreds of thousands of lives. This is, for lack of a better description, interagency. This is whole of government, right? This is integrated deterrence. The Navy has done these kinds of things that we talk about in the 21st century for over a century. I would argue probably for two or two centuries and a half, right? It, all the way back to the founding of the Navy. It's been part of the Navy's job is a diplomatic element and a humanitarian element of what navies do. And so you're exactly right that the Black Sea example, the Eastern Mediterranean example, shows us a lot of really interesting things to think about when we think about how navies are used even in the contemporary world. It's also though a part of that interwar preparation to your earlier point, right? I mean, you can't separate the two. You can't say, hey, it was just war college experiments and, and preparation for the second world war. All of this um, served to either prepare or hinder uh, the force as it looked to the Pacific very similar to today, right? I mean, um, there are those that criticize that we're too busy now and that we should, you know, take a break, if you will, uh, from traditional um, 
Navy missions. There are those that say, no, it's exactly those Navy missions that are going to prepare you. This is what I really like about your approach to this book, because I think a lot of people that under that have an underappreciation and a misunderstanding of history view it as really two separate efforts, that there was this kind of separate part of the Navy that was preparing for the Chinese, just as the other part kind of undertook the missions that you just described. No, I think that's exactly right, right? When when Chester Nimitz was the commanding officer of Augusta, the cruiser, where did Augusta go? Asiatic fleet, right? And what did he learn? He learned what the Great Pacific looked like. He learned the challenges of the distances. He He learned who the potential allies and adversaries were in the region, right? By being the commanding officer of that cruiser when, when they went out into the Pacific. That clearly has an influence on Nimitz's development as a leader, as an officer, and as a strategist that will come back to benefit the United States. Now, one of the challenges that, I, that have been thrown at me as I was working on this book and talking to some people about it was, okay, so the Navy did these things, they didn't keep the Japanese from attacking, though. They didn't stop the war from happening. So what's the point? They, their deterrence fail. And my response to that is, okay, that's, on the one hand, that's true, right? Like, the war started, granted, right? But would the war have started earlier? What did the U.S. Navy learn from all of these years? Let's use the Pacific as the example, working in the Pacific. What did they learn about the geography? What did they learn about the port facilities? What did they learn about the potential for allies? What did they learn about what it takes to operate there? What did they learn about the seascape, the hydrography, the geography? All of these things are important elements of knowledge for successful combat operations. There's also the element of what were the Americans doing that, that independent of whether or not a war starts with Japan were important. I would suggest that the protection of American business interests and the protection of American citizens is an important mission, regardless of whether you think you're going to war with another country somewhere. Right? And that's part of what the U.S. Navy was doing. The protection of those business interests creates an interesting dynamic there in the Pacific, and that is, you know, when historians look at back, what is the trigger for Pearl Harbor? You know, a lot of discussion circulates around the oil embargo, right? So when, when Franklin Roosevelt places the oil embargo on Japan, because the American, because American industry, American companies control so much of the oil industry in the Pacific, we're not just talking about where they pump oil out of the ground, which the Americans actually didn't control a whole lot of, what we're actually talking about is the tankers. We're talking about the infrastructure primarily controlled by Standard Oil, an American company. So when FDR puts the embargo on Japan, the problem is actually that Standard Oil stops carrying oil to Japan. Why does Standard Oil have that level of kind of dominance in the Pacific oil industry? Well, it's because the American Navy has been protecting them for 20 years and allowing them to build that kind of dominance. Now, did that embargo work? Well, we can argue about whether it worked or not, probably kind of not, right? Because it helps trigger the attack on Pearl Harbor. But reserving that ability for the commander in chief to be able to execute that, to use that lever of power, that's what navies do. That's why navies are connected to economics, to commerce, to trade, why they have an important element in economic power, not just military and combat power. Right. And so I think that that, that idea of protecting American 
interests and ability to do things, that's a naval mission, and that is a peacetime naval mission. I look forward to, uh, as Chris said, the book is or the uh, monograph is not out yet. I, I look forward to diving in, and this is a, a, a great preview. In the time we have left, though, I want to pivot a little bit. Um, we had on uh, Paul Giara and Jerry Roncolato a few weeks ago, and we sort of talked about, instead of looking at one particular uh, point in history, we kind of talked about the Navy um, and the Naval Service's appreciation of history. I would love to get your thoughts on that. I mean, as somebody that that is a uh, you know a lifelong scholar, somebody that teaches history, um, wh- where is your view on the current um, Navy's appreciation and appropriate use of, of of history? And I'm not looking for you to put somebody on report, but I mean, if you were you know if you're teaching history to the leadership, w- what takeaways would you have at this point? That's a tricky question, right? And and I guess I should emphasize that these are my opinions alone and presented in my personal and academic capacity, do not reflect the US Navy, US Naval Academy, or any government agency. Well said. Uh, I have to say that um, on the surface, most officers and most, most people who think about naval affairs and naval strategy are conscious of history and are interested in using it. I, I think this narrative of the inner warriors is a great example. I mean, you can't read an issue or two of proceedings without running across an article that talks about the lessons of the inner warriors, right? You can't read an article or a, an issue of proceedings without some discussion of historical lessons, right? And so that, I mean, that's a positive. The question becomes, how do we as an, as an institution, the Navy as a, as a learning organization, Are we actually studying, developing our history, bringing in the right tools for our leaders to use? And I think there's real question marks there, right? How well-funded is Navy History and Heritage Command and and what kind of work are they doing to support decision-making? You know, the same thing is true at the Naval War College or here at the Naval Academy. How much value is placed in these educational institutions and what they can provide? Are you, say, trying to cut the manpower from educational institutions to give those sailors or officers back to the fleet? Um, That degrades the ability of those institutions to develop those insights from history that help us learn things. Um, I have heard that the the reserves have have disestablished the units uh, in Newport at the War College and the unit associated with Navy History and Heritage Command, because those are not, quote unquote, war fighting units. Personally, I think that's exactly where I would want reservists working. You get some talented historians who can come in on reserve duty and provide valuable strategic insights for the Navy and the nation. Wow, that, that's a force multiplier right there. Um, but in a time of austere budgets, in a time of challenges with staffing and crewing of deployable forces, I understand that there are, there are trade-offs that need to be made. Uh, I do think that whether or not we're developing the right ideas, the right background, the right insights might not play into a lot of the calculus involved in those decisions. In addition to just throwing resources at it, I mean, do, do you have to first recognize the problem? I mean, I understand that, you know, sort of history is one one piece of it, right? I mean, as you're creating doctrine, as you're creating strategy, hopefully it's rooted in lessons from history. But do you... I, 
I guess I'm still struck by this idea that people would recognize at the highest levels that we are maybe in the interwar period, right? When I was in the Pentagon, and it's been a few years, but I mean, it was kind of thrown around, but there's this, until the organization kind of accepts that there is a problem and then the magnitude of the problem, I worry that it's hard to really go aggressively grasp onto historic lessons because people tend to, in my experience, they grab the lessons that they want to grab. Right. I mean, they come to a conclusion um, and then they find historical reference to back up their conclusion. So it's it's almost less of a, a history problem and it's more of a methodology problem. I just wonder if you find the same if you have the same concerns as a professor of history and then as somebody that sort of served in the trenches, uh, you know, like I did and other shipmates did at the Pentagon. I won't say who it was, but a, a retired strategist and, and mentor once said to me, you know, BJ, admirals don't have history books on their bedside table, which they all do. They all tell you they're reading history books. Admirals don't have history books on their bedside table in order to find new ideas and in order to find new solutions. They have them on their bedside table to reaffirm their preconceived notions and reaffirm the ideas they already have in their heads. And like you said, that's kind of a methodological illustration of, of the potential problem. I don't know that that's entirely true. Like we, there are some great examples of, you know, I think of, of when Admiral Richardson kind of helped spark the republishing of rules of the game um, about the Battle of Jutland. I mean, that, that's a right. clear example of someone really thinking about our history and trying to get the, the Naval Officer Corps to think about it. There, there is a cultural element here. And, and last time I was on the program, we were actually talking about the book that, that my colleague John Fryman and I wrote in order to maybe get at this cultural question a little bit. You know, within our professional identities, is there an intellectual side to this? You know, we, we are taught to PT. We are taught to make sure we get our time in for our physical development, uh, but we never talk about our intellectual development. You know, I got to make sure I get at least 30 minutes to an hour every day for my PT, but do I have 30 minutes to an hour a day to read, to read proceedings, to read a history book, to read whatever seems relevant to me? Many of us don't, and we're not encouraged to right. within the officer corps. And then and, think and about think it on top of that. Right. And have the time to think. Now, there's enormous challenges with, with sea duty and how busy we all are, especially on sea duty, right? Can you find that time? I think that's a, that's a valid question to ask. I, I do know a lot of JOs who probably could trim back on the video games and, and read something for a minute <laughs> or two. Um, you know, I was that way as a JO also, but I do think that's a cultural thing. I think that's something that the Naval Officer Corps could decide to work on remedying but it, it's a, it needs to be conscious decision. Uh, skippers, department heads, XOs need to actually engage with their JOs, with the people that work for them, with their sailors, with their chiefs on an intellectual level uh, in order to develop the kind of thinking that we're talking about. Because it doesn't just magically happen when you put stars on your collar. Right. That's the assumption is, oh, I'll put stars on my collar and all of a sudden I'll get all of this. Nuh-uh. You have to prepare. You have to study for a lifetime before you get there. 
Well, that is a good place to leave it uh, for this week. BJ, thank you very much. Um, I would encourage folks, and we'll share it in the write-up, to check out your new writing. I would encourage them to check out your previous writings as well. But um, thank you again for joining us, and we look forward to having you back uh, in a few months. Good luck with the academic year as you kick that off in uh, in August. And uh, thanks again for being on the podcast. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, BJ. All right. Well, as we said at the top of the podcast, the big news this week are the top leadership nominations that have finally come out from the White House for Admiral, especially Admiral Franchetti to become CNO, um, the vice CNO position, the Indo-PACOM position, the Pacific Fleet position. All of these have been held up. Um, there have been great delays in the White House making these announcements. Um, we all know that uh, the top leadership nominations uh, across the military are in some, something of a chaos right now caused by Senator Tuberville from um, Alabama, who's put a blanket hold on all three and four star nominations. People can still make nominations, but you can't bring them to a vote on the floor of the Senate. Um, and this is, a, this is a serious problem. It's affecting the military across the board. It's affecting readiness and morale, um, but it's a, it's a pretty negative thing, situation. However, we're not gonna talk about that at the moment. We're gonna talk about some of these personalities um, Admiral Franchetti, uh, Sam, uh, Admiral Paparo, Admiral Kilby, Admiral um, Kohler. So start off with, Chris, what do you make of these, of these four major nominations? I think they're good picks, Chris. I mean, as we talked about when it was first rumored that it might be Admiral Paparo to CNO over Admiral Franchetti, you know, we both agreed that both were outstanding naval leaders. They had uh, strong warfighting chops. Um, they had good knowledge of the building and how the building works and how Capitol Hill works, um, and that the Navy would be lucky to have either a CNO. Um, I, I think that Admiral Franchetti to be CNO makes a lot of sense. Um, she's currently the vice chief. She will be the acting CNO um, for as long as the Tuber Tuberville mess continues. Um, to then move her out of that job so that somebody else could come in, I think worried some people, as we talked about uh, la last week. Um, and I think she's the the right person right now. I, I think it's less of a of a historic pick or less of a the fact that she's a, a woman and uh, and more the fact that she's the right person at the right time. Um, as is Admiral Sam Paparo to be the um, Indo PACOM leader. I mean, he's done a fantastic job um, out at um, Pack Fleet. Uh, he was preparing for. Uh, the move up to Camp Smith and to be the the head of Indo-PACOM. Uh, I think keeping him on track for that transition um, provides a tremendous amount of stability among the other services, uh, among our allies and partners. Um, and I think we have a strong warfighter in the Pacific. Admiral Kilby going to, the to be the vice chief, I, I think is a great pick. Um, he's held a number of both community jobs as well as um, important uh, warfighting development jobs. He was the N9 uh, in the building. He was down at Fleet Forces Command, so he understands both the building and um, Fleet Forces. He's just a really good guy, um, which is important to have uh, in the vice um, good guy or gal, because they tend to be the, the person that people come to maybe if the CNO, uh, has a blind spot or two. So I think he'll compliment Admiral, uh, Franchetti very well. Um, and then Admiral Kohler goes out to be packed fleet. I mean, currently on the joint staff, he's going to bring a lot of trust from the joint force, going to bring a lot of trust from, um, the SecDef and, and from the joint side. Um, and so to go out there and compliment Paparo, 
I, I think is the right move. So I, I'm excited about this. I, I'm, I would say if there's any downside to me, it's just the uncertainty associated with um, Senator Tuberville's ridiculous hold. Um, you know, we need these people as, as well as the other nominations that are, have been made across the joint force. We need them to be in permanent roles. We need them to be focused on war fighting and taking care of the services. We don't need them to be worried about when and if they will be, their nomination will be taken up by the Senate. I mean, that's just a waste of their, their bandwidth. It absolutely is a waste. It's a waste of a lot of things. Um, I, I, I agree with you about, about all the people, um, Edible Franchetti. You know, she's not the, the 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 knock. If there is a knock on her, is that her senior leadership experience has been in Europe, um, where, she, where she's very familiar with um, with the European theater, uh, the issues out there. Not quite as much out in the Pacific, where Samuel Paparo has uh, has has been for quite some time. Um, that's that that's really it. But um, I, I think she's a very capable person. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a nice move. Um, She's, it'll certainly inspire a lot of people. Um, and I think she's the first, she might be the first uh, CNO to, to be a graduate of Northwestern University, but uh, my wife's alma mater, so I have to stick with uh -huh. her. Um, but um, no, I think, I, I think she's an excellent choice. She should be making an excellent leader. It's sort of interesting, just an observation that um, she is a SWO. Uh, she comes from the service community as does Emma Kilby. Um, so we'll have two SWOs in the CNO and, and vice CNO spot. Um, Admiral Paparo and Admiral Kohler are both aviators. Uh, no submariner in that in that in that um, quartet there. But um, yeah, I, let, let me just jump on that for a second, Chris, because I think you will hear grumblings over the next months and years. Not so much that the submariners are on the outside, um, because I think they feel pretty good about their future vis-a-vis -vis Virginia class and, and Columbia. I think you're going to hear some grumbling from aviators. Um, there are some graybeard aviators and some other senior aviators uh, who, who felt like now was the time for uh, an aviator to be CNO um, for lots of reasons. Um, I think that, you, you know, if I'm Admiral Franchetti, I'm making a strong appeal to my aviators in my wardroom. I'm making a strong appeal to the aviator graybeards and to uh, Admiral Paparo to show that I am no longer a SWO, but that I am the, the leader of all of the communities as, uh, as CNO. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to watch how that unfolds. It will, it will. Well, folks, I think that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavaliers podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles making transoceanic missions possible. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. <laughs>